Barbecue's our passion, and that's just what you'll get where the Kim Burns is a barbecuer. Tales from the pits. Howdy, welcome to another episode of Tales from the Pits. This is Brian. And Andrew. And today we are here at the Humble Civic Arena. Humble Civic Center, uh, the night before the 6th Annual Houston Barbecue Festival. And we are here with none other than Patrick Fegis of Fegis Barbecue. Welcome in, Patrick. Thank you for having me. And we're going we're gonna to get into, there's a lot of news with Fegis Barbecue over the last several months, now opening Greenway Plaza. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna go all the way back to kind of the first seeds of Fiji's barbecue and, and get into how you got to where you are now and, and possibly what the future may hold. So let's start way back the way back at the beginning, Brian. What do you have? So you know, um, <clears throat> Patrick, we've talked before, and and um, you're you're a veteran, um, honored veteran. Tell us a little bit about um, that time. Uh, let's see, I joined the army summer well. I went to basic training summer of 2003. I technically signed up <clears throat> right before my 18th birthday. Um, delayed entry program. Uh, we were at war with Afghanistan before Iraq. That spring we went to war, we invaded Iraq. Um, and then yeah, that summer is when I went to basic training, uh, which was great because it's Fort Jackson, South Carolina, in the summer and everyone's bitching about the heat and the humidity and I'm in Houston guys this ain't nothing <laughs> uh, went to Korea after that South Korea Camp Hovey Camp Casey about 10 miles from the DMZ uh, and this is when North Korea was behaving themselves so it was uh, wasn't as, as tense as it is now I'm sure uh, spent about eight months there and we got orders to deploy to Iraq um, <clears throat> Were you so, expecting Iraq was a possibility at the time, or was that a surprise? No, it was a complete surprise, because <clears throat> technically uh, Korea is a, a, a deployment, because technically they're, technically they're still at war. Um, there's a ceasefire, and obviously the way North Korea's acting, you know, it's tense, right? Um, so it's, that was the silver lining, like, oh, if I'm going to Korea, at least I'm not going to Iraq or Afghanistan. <laughs> But they decided to downsize the U.S. force in South Korea and hand it more over to the South Koreans. And since we are technically combat ready and haven't been in combat, they decided that they were going to send us to Iraq and then permanently to stateside, uh, which ended up being um, in, in Colorado, Fort Carson. Um, <clears throat> so because we're prepared to go to war with North Korea, we were prepared to go to war with in Iraq, which is, you know, jungles, desert, same thing pretty much, right? Uh, so that was August of 2004 is when we shipped out to Iraq, or Kuwait. We spent about three weeks in Kuwait training, uh, shooting ranges and you know, convoy training and stuff like that, getting acclimated to the desert, which Kuwait sucks. I have no idea why anyone fights for that. It's, I mean, that's your movie desert, windblown sand in your face, and it was 10 degrees. Yeah, I think it hit, I think the highest it hit while I was there was like 120. Whew, fucking miserable. 
and you have to wear goggles. You go outside, you're wearing goggles because it's blowing sand in your face. Like, but you know they got oil, so you know. But um, so we were there for about three I, weeks. I picture the scene from uh, <clears throat> Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when they're out in the desert. They're wearing the goggles, and all the beers full of full of sand as well as they're out there. There's yeah. all that without the beer, though. So. Yeah, right, without the beer. Yeah, without the fun and the drugs and all the other right, good stuff. Right, yeah. It was funny because we had to, uh, you, you had to wait for the sand to die down before you can go take a shower. So you went and took a shower and then walked out while you were still kind of damp, and the sand would just stick to you. So it's like, you know, it's, uh, it was interesting. But, um, so yeah, after three weeks of training and stuff like that, we got to do some cool army shit. Uh, shoot a lot of guns. Um, we we did the convoy into Iraq, and it was about a three day three day convoy. And Iraq's not that big, but we're going. Imagine driving to Dallas, going 35, 40 miles an hour. <laughs> it took a while. Uh, all the same time, you know, it's so this was the second year of the Iraq War, 2004. So it was still relatively new. Really before IEDs became a thing, uh, they were just starting to become a thing. But you know, you gotta be vigilant. So it's, imagine driving to Dallas, going 35, 40 miles an hour, but your head on a swivel and constantly stressed out. Um, so it took us three days to get there. We went to Aramadi, which is the capital of the Sunni Triangle. Uh, it's kind of Ramadi, Fallujah, and Baghdad, kind of the, the big bad cities. Uh, we were, so I was the 2nd Infantry Division, the Army. We were attached to 1st Marine Division, who was running the camp uh, that we were at. We stayed on an old Republican Guard base. Uh, rumor has it the room me and the guys I was with were staying in was uh, where they used to torture people. So that was great. Uh, whatever, we had a roof and walls and, and AC, so I couldn't complain. Uh, I spent, I was there for three months, uh, dodged some bullets, literally dodged some bullets. Uh, Ramadi had two snipers, one really good and one really bad. I got shot at by the bad one. Uh, me and my sergeant were, were sitting in an observation tower and the bullet literally went between our heads. And you know, um, dodged some mortars, we got mortared every day. Wow. Uh, Every single day, they lob mortars at us, and they what they would do is they would put the tubes in trucks or, and lob a mortar and, and drive off, so you couldn't find them. So there was a couple of close calls with mortars. Um, what ultimately got me was a mortar. I was walking to the dining facility. <clears throat> it was the day before my 20th birthday, November 1st, Day of the Dead. Um, we were walking and I turned to say something to a buddy of mine. There's about six of us and this, this explosion goes off and you feel the concussion. People kind of got knocked off their feet because it was, I found out later, it was like 20 feet away uh, is where it landed, which is pretty close. Um, immediately felt the pain in my gut and uh, you know, assess everything, who's hurt, who's injured, whatever. And I'm, you know, I'm hit, so they grabbed me up and carried. Luckily, I'm only alive today because we were right next to the aid station. So they picked me up, carried me in to the aid station, and uh, at that point I'm out. And I, I do remember they were carrying me, and they stopped to take my rifle off because they, 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 
they laid me down, whatever, and then they picked me up, and I guess my rifle was banging against their knees or their shins. And so they stopped to take my rifle off, and I just remember yelling at them, like, don't stop, keep going, keep going. Just, who cares? Uh, so they give me an aid station, and it's I'm, I'm in and out. Um, long, not to get into the details any more than I have already, I ended up severing my iliac artery, which is a very major artery. It's the one, it, it's your femoral artery, but higher up in your abdomen. I ended up receiving 32 units of blood, which out of curiosity, I Googled later on and found out that the average human has 14 units of blood in them. So I, I mean, I bled to death. Uh, twice. Twice. My, I was re- my heart stopped and I was revived twice. Once, I believe, I mean, the, the, the records aren't, don't really tell you where this happened, but I believe by just recollection, one was in Ramadi, right when that happened, and then the other time in Baghdad, uh, where they did the, the surgery. Um, so I kind of tore up my intestines. Uh, I actually <laughs> got to see my intestines. Um, this is getting dark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is it's real life. I mean, yeah, that's combat yeah. wounds, and and this is what you have to yeah, do to, right. to live. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I lost a foot, uh, literally twelve inches of intestines. Uh, severed my iliac artery. They took uh, artery out of my left leg to attach it to the iliac to reattach it. Um, I developed in Baghdad. So this all happened in Baghdad. I developed compartment syndrome which is a sports injury uh, where blood was going down to my leg and then uh, it wasn't coming back up. Not coming up, yeah. So then you're at risk for uh, um, blood clots. So what they did is a, what they call fasciotomy, which is they cut either side of my calf from knee to ankle just to let the blood out. And uh, I'm sure some of the 32 units went there as well. Um, to this day, my right calf is is a lot larger than my left calf. It never, it's just scar tissue, right? Um, so they're flying me to Germany. The plan was to, when I landed in Germany, they were planning on amputating my leg below the knee because it wasn't getting better after they did the fasciotomy. They, for whatever reason, the air pressure on that flight fixed whatever was wrong. Wow. But they were scheduled to chop the leg off. So, they said Ramstein or yeah, yeah Ramstein, yeah. yeah. Um, that's kind of like the European <laughs> uh, staging area. Right. Um, you're where they before they send you back stateside. So, yeah, I saw my leg because because of that flight. I've I've had doctors tell me, oh, you're lucky to be alive. You're lucky you're not shitting in a bag. You're lucky you still have your leg. So it's as bad as it was. I used up all my luck yeah, it was the complete right set of circumstances for a horrible situation to right. be less horrible I guess exactly yeah. exactly I guess it's no point in playing a lotto because I used up all of my good fortune uh, that day um, so I was in Ramstein for a week out uh, I woke up at Walter Reed in Washington DC uh, they had to, they took me off of pain medication they took me off everything trying to wake me up I was just out um you know, wake up and they, you know, uh, they, I spent 
two two weeks in Walter Reed, and this happened right before Bush got reelected. I mean, this was November first, right? Uh, so I Bush went to Walter Reed on a, a weekly basis. I found out, and they asked the president's coming. Would you like to to meet him? Turn to my mom. She's shaking her head yes because she's a diehard Republican and Bush is from Texas and we're in Texas and he golfs at the golf course uh, across the street from where we grew up. It's like, yeah, sure. Like, did he win? Like, I had no <laughs> idea. I had been out. Like, oh, yeah, he won. He won. All right, cool, cool. So they, uh, I still got to meet President Bush. And the best story about that is my brother talking his way past Secret Service because <laughs> they shut the whole floor down. And my brother had gone to do something and didn't make the trip up to that floor because they moved me to another room this floor secure this is where the president's coming my brother my brother somehow talked his way past secret service uh to get to the room and then he kept trying to get me to ask him about his daughters and i'm on <laughs> morphine uh, the Bush I've twins a, were a big deal back yeah, then yeah they were they were <laughs> some party girls and you know i was on morphine and i i had a fever i was hallucinating I was, they were giving me ambien at night ambien and morphine i was, I was tripping for like three days <laughs> And I'm like, no, no. But I just remember this nurse telling me, make sure you call him Mr. President. Like, okay, okay. And so then he's talking to me, and I just like, yes, Mr. President. Okay, Mr. President. Yes, Mr. President. And my brother's sitting there just dying laughing. Because <laughs> I'm just like rambling on. Just Mr. President, <laughs> Mr. President. But uh, that was cool. But probably the coolest part of that is, so he walks in, and he's got this president, this presence, like Bush, like a Texas swagger. You know, that's why he won. Politics aside, he's got swagger, right? He walks into the room, you know he's there. And uh, and then quietly, about two minutes after he walked in the room, Laura Bush slips in and immediately goes to the parents. And then she came by, and that was probably, I thought that was kind of cooler than meeting Bush. Like, all right, Bush is doing his duty, but like she kind of came in and on the slide, not to be, you know. And kind of under the radar, yeah. just to cool. pay respect. And, and, and the cool... And, you know, they take pictures. They have an official photographer. And, you know, Bush and Laura, uh, or George and Laura signed it personally. And uh, they sent it to you. And actually, Laura Bush came out with an autobiography. And our picture is in that book. Amazing. They have the wrong name. <laughs> My name's not in the Figs? book. No, it was, I think it was the other guy that was in the room. <laughs> Sergeant Stone. They promoted me. Uh, boom, the picture's in there. But uh, after that, they sent me down to um, San Antonio. It was... They waited. I knew this before I even got hurt. Uh, we were waiting till the election, after the election, before we went and sweep the city. Because a bunch of wounded soldiers isn't good for re-election. Yeah, uh, the, the optics of things. and Yeah. 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 So as soon, as soon as the election was over, that's when they went through Fallujah again. And we went through Ramadi. And uh, so Walter Reed was getting overrun with, with injured soldiers. So they... Uh, we live in Houston. If you guys want to send us down to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, and they were happy to, you know, send me down there because they needed the beds, and um, and it was better for my leg because Brook Army Medical Center is the number one burn unit in the world, which does skin grafts, and because my leg was so swollen, I needed a skin graft on it uh, because remember they cut it from knee to ankle, and it was, I mean, it was open maybe like, like four inches. Like I could see calf muscle. It was insane. Yeah, there's no lacroscopy. This is just, this is trauma units. Yeah. I mean, you do what you can to make sure the patient lives, and that's the number one priority, the only right, priority. Right, exactly. And it was, 
I always remember it was always I was on a morphine button, and uh, God, morphine's great too. Uh, <laughs> I, I can totally see why people get addicted to it. It was. Okay. It did, was. Did you ever have Dilaudid? No, no. Okay, well, we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's another episode, Brian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But every time they had to change the bandages twice a day, they had to give me a shot of, of morphine because it was so painful on my leg. Because your nerve endings grow back faster than the your tissue, skin cells, yeah. your tissue does. So that's that's why it's so painful, band-aids and stuff like that. And so, uh, but they sent me down to BAMSI, Brook Army Medical Center. And so my mom was actually able to go home because she was up there the entire time. Uh, so she was actually able to go home and visit me and come back and visit. Because I, I got four brothers, or three brothers and a sister. Uh, they were the all still or? living at home. I'm the oldest, yeah. Okay. So they're all still living at home. So my mom spent two weeks in Washington with neighbors watching. So she had to go home, go back to work and stuff like that. So, you know, I was in the hospital uh, in San Antonio for, for three weeks. They did the, the skin graft. I still had, they don't, nowadays they don't like to sew you back up. Uh, they like, they do they have this thing called a wound back. Essentially, it's put a sponge in your wound and cover it with a piece of plastic and have this vacuum hooked up to it. It sucks out all the gunk. It's healthier. But it heals a lot slower. So it's, uh, I was constantly, even when they sent me home after that, just constantly, you know, dealing with that. But uh, they sent me home, come back in, in two weeks for an appointment. They sent me home for a month. And this is the falling through the cracks army thing right here. Send me home for a, a, a month. Come back in two weeks for a doctor's appointment. Go, okay, go home for two more weeks. So I got to be home for Christmas. I got to be home for the 2004 snowstorm. <laughs> uh, I was on crutches, but... Uh, That's the last white Christmas we've had here. So. Right, yeah. Um, so I come back, a month later, I come back, visit the doctor. I'm like, all right, well, what do I do now? And he's like, just, just go home. All right, cool. So I went home. He's like, go home and call this number, and, you know, they'll tell you what to do. <laughs> I could never get anyone on the phone. And maybe uh, two, maybe three weeks later, I finally get a phone call from some sergeant looking for Patrick, you know, special, uh, PFC Patrick Fegis. I'm like, yeah, it's me. Like, oh, I'm so glad to find you. I've been looking for you for weeks. I'm like, well, I've been, I've been <laughs> in Sugarland. What are you? <laughs> like, well, you, you know, you're AWOL, right? Like, <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> wow. Like, you're supposed to be here. I'm like, look. So, like, I was at the hospital. The doctor told me go home, call this number. I've been calling this number twice a day. No one's answering. Granted, like, you know, I wasn't really trying to get anyone to answer. Like, yeah, I'll call this number. Hopefully they don't answer. I can stay home a little bit longer. Like, well, we need you to come up here. I'm like, all right, give me two days. Drive back up there. Uh, <laughs> uh, at this point, I'm mostly healed. You know, still limping around and stuff, but off off crutches. Um, drive back up there and kind of got chewed out. I'm like, like, I just did what I was told. You know, just kind of, I fell through the cracks. It happens. But uh, so they put me in the medical holding unit, uh, which you're in while you heal or while you out process. So you go to the medical holding unit and you visit this doctor and he evaluates you and he decides. Do you stay and heal and go back to your unit or do you work on getting out of the military, medically discharged? And so he decided they were going to medically discharge me. I at the time wasn't fit for duty uh, I couldn't the biggest thing is I couldn't lay in the prone position because when they when I was hurt they did oh I totally skipped this part this is a great part uh, <laughs> they did abdomen surgery 
to get a clean up you know the artery clean up the intestines get all the metal out my blood pressure was so low while they were doing this they couldn't give me an- enough anesthesia so i woke up in the middle of surgery oh god. oh god it's you can't even describe it it's i could hear them i could feel everything i could move my right hand and my left foot so i just started shaking my right hand and finally I mean, uh, you, I mean, you can feel everything. It's like Braveheart when they're torturing them. It's like that. Um, finally, a nurse like sees me shaking my hand and starts freaking out. And I can hear everything. I can't open my eyes, but I can hear everything. She kind of grabs my hand and holds it. And then it's, shortly after that, I'm out again. Because I think they realize, like, oh, crap. Like, we need to give yeah, them we more. We can't have them wake yeah. up fully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, wow. uh, so they did the abdomen surgery from... My sternum down past my belly button is where the insertion. And so as it healed, I wasn't able to, for a while I wasn't able to stand up straight, much less lay down on my stomach in the prone, prone firing position. So because of that, they decided that, you know, we're going to medically discharge. It was a very good idea. Yeah, it's yeah. Probably, a, probably a fair decision at that point. Right. <laughs> you know, and I was, if I hadn't gotten hurt, I probably would have stayed in 20 years. I mean, I'd be five years away from retirement right now. You know, and it's, I really loved being in the Army. And I loved, it's weird to say, but going to Iraq kind of, like, ignited something. Like, oh, this is why you join. Like, you know, kicking doors. You know, Serving sh- country yeah. and, and getting the bad guys. And, yeah. I mean, at the most naturalistic part of being, you know, serving in the military. Yeah. That's not trying to keep yourself busy on some base in Korea. You know, watching movies. Right. You know, doing the, the cool Army stuff, right? And, uh, but also your death experience kind of changes your mind so I didn't argue that when they decided uh, you're done I'm like alright cool I agree uh, so I spent what eight, about eight months there and so they give you menial jobs as why you heal just so you're not sitting around in your barracks doing nothing uh, and so I at one point they I was scanning old burn files because again number one burning unit in the world um scanning burn files dating back to Vietnam wow. onto the computer uh, as they, you know, updating and getting everything digital, which was insane reading these things. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be a very uh, moving job for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Like- yeah. and But it was kind of cool to see them, because uh, they always percentage burn. You know, they're burned on 20% of their body, 25, whatever. But it was kind of interesting to see the percentage get higher and the uh, survival rate get higher right. as as they got better at treating this sort of stuff. So it's... You go back to the Civil War and it was hacksaws right. and legs right. at the well, first I mean, thing. They talk about and that with you, even like vehicle accidents. Like the number of accidents hasn't decreased but the the number of injuries has because cars are made safer, not because yeah, less right. accidents yeah, are because happening. Because the, the so. deaths are lower but the injuries are higher right. because of that. Yeah, Absolutely. and the, the VA is struggling because of that. It's because less soldiers are dying, more are surviving and so the VA is having yeah, to take... You've got living, yeah. wounded people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the, uh, the PTSD and the, the, the veteran suicide stuff is attributed to that because less people are dying in the field and they're coming back but it was really interesting to see like you know people getting burned 80 percent, but they still survived like you know it's but uh i did that for a while and they made me a duty driver where you're driving people to appointments picking up their family from the airport you know which was great because i you know you work like eight hours a day like 
you know, three days a week, maybe one week in a month. It was it was a lot easier. Damn. A lot more free time. But one of the guys that was also the duty driver, uh, in the army, if you got one of those last names that's like eight letters, you're just your alphabet. Private alphabet. Specialist alphabet. And I cannot remember this guy's name. But his nickname was Specialist Alphabet because it was some Czech name that was like 10 letters long. Ended with SKI, probably. Yeah. Or somewhere around there, yeah. Or Wits. Or... Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, he was leaving. He was getting out, going back home, wherever, California, whatever. And he was living off base with his wife, and I guess a neighbor had given him this Brinkman vertical smoker. And he asked me, he's like, I'm Don't well, like the bullet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like one of the no OGs. No pun intended. Yeah, right, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, he's asked, well, I'm leaving. Like, do you want this? I'm like, well, I don't know. He's like, well, if you don't want it, I'm just going to leave it by the trash. I'm like, well, I guess I'll take it home because every weekend I'm going home because I'm three hours from where I grew up, where my mom lives. Uh, I was like, well, I guess I'll take it home. Yeah, sure. And uh, so I guess that was the, the first inkling of me cooking barbecue. That was a... Uh, took me 15 minutes to get to this part right? <laughs> uh that's fascinating i mean did you have before that did you have experiences of eating barbecue anywhere yeah well i mean i i grew up in texas right so we ate yeah we grew up eating barbecue uh, uh brook street barbecue was our go-to because in sugarland they're on highway six right by the denny's yep 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 and uh interesting turn of events the guy that owns that also owns Lulu's Mediterranean in Greenway Food Court. Uh, so he comes by a lot. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, barbecue circle in a way. Yeah, yeah. The guy's eating my barbecue when I grew up eating his. Uh, we went to Luther's a lot too. <laughs> All you can eat ribs? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know. I just, we went <laughs> Swing and Door was mine. Yeah. yeah. That, that, I, I grew up with a lot uh, of Swing We went to Hickory Hollow a little bit. Yeah. Uh, my friend's dad played in a bluegrass band. So we spent a lot of time at Hickory Hollow. Um, in Texas, like you grew up eating barbecue, yeah. right? My parents didn't cook barbecue. We had a, a Weber grill, no smoker. My mom can't cook to save her life, and she'll tell you that. Um, but uh, a lot of grilled chicken, you know. But barbecues, I enjoyed eating barbecue. And I've always been that guy to do things the hard way, hence the Army, hence working in restaurants. Uh that once I kind of got bit by that barbecue bug, it's like, all right, let me try and figure out how to do this myself. Uh, which, it's a you know. dangerous road to go down. <laughs> yeah, and, and at the time, you know, a lot of people may, may not understand, but, you know, it, bef- you know, we call it kind of before Franklin, but before his book, before his videos, yeah. there was not a lot of material out there. You know what? I was, so I was in culinary school about two years after I got out of the Army. You know, I ended up in culinary school in Austin. Year-wise, what, what were we talking here, 2000? 2006. Okay. Yeah, I got out of the Army in 2005. September 2005 is when I was officially, no, October 2005, I was officially out of the Army. October 2006, I moved to Austin to go to culinary school. And you put yourself through culinary school? Sort of. Sorta. I mean, you got the GI Bill, but the GI Bill, bill wasn't paying enough. Um, eventually, the... When you get out of the military, whether you're injured or not, they tell you go to the VA and apply for disability. It's service connected. So you can be in 20 years and have a bad back because you're jumping out of trucks for 20 years. They compensate you for that. You can get blown up like I did and they compensate you for it. 
uh, there's a certain percentage they you know they do percentage wise certain percentages things kick benefits kick in handicap plates uh, they in they give you a monthly stipend every every month uh, and it goes up by percentage um, but there's a certain percentage where they called it um, I can't remember off the top of my head um, vocational rehab we're going to pay for you to go to school to to um, change your career choice. It's like, well, I mean, I was already going to culinary school, but my disability hadn't kicked in yet. And it was, uh, like, it took 14 months. People started figuring out the VA is really slacking in this. Newsweek does an article on the VA failing wounded soldiers, OIF, OEF, and I was one of the people they interviewed. Uh, so I got my picture in Newsweek, they interviewed me and stuff. A week later, the VA calls me to tell me my, my disability's gone through. Like, Surprise. Right, hey. I mean, my mom was reaching out to Kay Bailey Hutchinson. She was looking into it. Uh, one of the, I can't remember which one. One of the news channels down here in Houston was looking into it. Uh, veteran care, and it's this is not a political statement, but veteran care, or the lack thereof, has been a hot-button topic, and for good reason, for a long time in this country. And it's... it's I, I don't want to go on a tangent and say it's disgraceful, it's this, it's that, but... For what they give to what they get, it's, it's the balance isn't there, and it needs to be there. It's a cost of war that isn't considered, and it, it's long term. Right. It's well, not, you know, it's I think as Patrick alluded thing. to, a lot of people died in war, and so the numbers for a long time weren't that high in yeah. terms of what care you had to provide. But as medicine's getting better and people are surviving these horrific injuries, the care needs to be there. And I think this country's still figuring out how the best way is to do that. And and I hope they get there eventually because it, it needs to it needs to improve. Well, part of the problem is we're still at war. You know, uh, they weren't ready. They weren't ready for the amount of people. Twenty four hours ago, right? Yeah, well, we're even. we're what our third war now. Uh, they weren't ready for the amount of people coming back. They it was uh, Afghanistan, Iraq was supposed to be quick and easy, and it obviously wasn't. Uh, so it's the, the VA wasn't ready. As as I'm I'm with you on that, but as as difficult as it can be but they just they weren't ready for for all this uh no one was really uh or else we wouldn't have been so gung-ho about it uh that being said like when i'm at the va it's like i'm usually the youngest person there it's usually vietnam guys i hardly see that many people my age um so anyways so the 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 va uh you know they gave me the you know approve my disability or whatever uh my percentage and so they reached out to me they're gonna we're gonna pay for school because like i had to take out school loans because the gi bill was only giving me a thousand dollars a month culinary like, school is not cheap no it was 30 36 thousand dollars for one year all right one year a thousand dollars a month and you were in austin so you had rent and everything else. yeah cordon bleu or where we're at cordon bleu yeah okay. this is uh texas Corning academy the Cordon Bleu, which a couple barbecue guys have gone to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this was like right when they turned to Le Cordon Bleu. So you had to pay extra for that Le Cordon Bleu. Hey, it's French. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm classically French trained. Sure. You get your ass kicked in a different language. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now they're closed. So, um, But, uh, yeah, so I went there and it's a barbecue, you know, the Austin lifestyle. This was, you know, 2006. Obviously still before Franklin. Um, kind of eating around where do you go Cooper's in Lano uh, Rudy's and I have thoughts on Rudy's that a lot of people probably won't agree with 
that it's actually decent? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I agree 100%. Rudy's yeah. problem is they fall in between. They're, they're not they're, a classic. Right. Yeah. They're inconsistent sometimes, but but Rudy's, in my opinion, is the minimum bar of what anybody else should be. Yes. And if you can't be as good as Rudy's, you shouldn't be in the business. Yeah. And it's not bad. I've had bad barbecue at Rudy's. Mm-hmm. We had bad barbecue today. Yeah. yeah. But in the average of, of my visits to Rudy's, it's... It is. It's solid. It's, it's pretty solid. Barbecue, it is. You know? But their problem is they're not a classic. Right. Yeah. And but they're not a quote unquote craft barbecue. They're not a snows of Franklin. Yeah. A, you know. Although at Killings. that time there was no craft barbecue. Exactly. Like it didn't right. exist. Right. At exactly. That time. And for a long time they were really really good. And especially the the location in, in North Austin, like a 183 North. Yeah, that's that was mine. That was yeah, yeah. That was a big. That was a very big place. So that, that was a franchise. Yeah. And so they didn't. They. <laughs> Russell can probably attest to this. But they, uh, I mean, they did things a little different than the normal ones did, and I thought they were the better one. Right. That, uh, there was a there was a lot of buzz about that location yeah. for a long time. Yeah, I lived on Burnett, right down the street. Uh, that and the Rudy's in, in San Marcos is great when you get off the river. I don't care. Like, <laughs> cold beer, good barbecue. Yeah, and yeah. I got a sandwich too. It's brisket, ribs, onion. Wait, wait, ribs, ribs on, on your the sandwich? sandwich? No, no, I'm sorry, not ribs. No, I'm, I'm sorry, sausage. Let's not get into that. Uh, <laughs> so brisket, sausage, uh, a ring of onion to hold, yeah, yeah. to hold the cream corn, oh no, and the pickled jalapenos and, and uh, uh, carrots, and then you the barbecue OG sauce. Hipster there, dude. It's messy, but it was so. It was, we, especially we when to, you're we drunk. We have to go and build that just, just yeah, as an honor. Yeah, yeah. And, but like when you're drunk off the river, it was like the greatest thing ever. Sure. But yeah, so Rudy's... Nobody gets drunk on the river. Right, yeah. Texas Rite of Passage. Yeah, so, you know, I eat Rudy's a lot. And then um, while I was at home before I went to culinary school, I kind of was playing around with that smoker, the the infamous rusted out Brinkman, uh, playing around with it, not really serving any, cooking anything that's really worth talking about. Um, no idea what I'm doing. Um, so I remember in culinary school, we had a student that had cancer or something so they decided to do a, a uh, barbecue cook-off to raise money so everyone in our class we got together we had this guy that had a big uh 500 gallon propane tank smoker that was, that's a big deal back then now, i yeah. gotta ask yeah. was there a bunch of french chefs training you at no. this time okay no. okay because i went to culinary school around the same time and it was straight frenchmen and they did not want to see a smoker or a grill or anything. really no not yet. these guys no <laughs> They, well, he said it was not. It was not a Lake Cordon Bleu before. Right. So yeah. But yeah. I yeah. guess that's kind of. Uh, I've got French of, yeah. culinary nightmares. Did you go to Lake Cordon Bleu? I didn't go to Lake no. Cordon Bleu. I went to another French culinary school that okay. we don't want to talk about on air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we had. You know, it's. I think every culinary school kind of has this. You have some really good chefs there, and then you have some burned out chefs. Yes. And you have some chefs just stringing it out the end of their career. And you have some people that are just clueless. It's just you know. If you can't, if you can't do it, teach or write a cookbook. Right. It's culinary school is a good way for a good place for chefs to go die. Yeah, you know, it, like just it. ride out the rest of my career, tell war stories to these these new guys. Uh, but yeah, so we uh, yeah we had a guy he had the, the smoker he lived in Buda, and uh, he was an army guy too. You know, a lot of military people go to culinary school. Interesting. We had a lot of people in my class that uh, were in the military. Um, it's hard work, and it's you know. there's there, there's a theme. You yeah. know, the adrenaline rush, the the, the shitty hours, the the it's, shitty it's, pay, it's rough life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never got the shitty pay in the in the military. Like, yeah, you don't get paid a lot, but like, I don't pay rent. I don't 
really have to pay for food. You know, like, I get to save all my money. I never really understood that. Yeah, it's not a lot, but I don't spend a lot either. Um, so we did this cook-off. You must have not played a lot of poker. No, no. I spent all my money on DVDs and CDs, you know. And, um, so we we do this cook-off, and, you know, I'm going to do the brisket. I'll do the brisket. I've cooked some brisket. I'll do the brisket. This guy James is his smoker. He's going to do the ribs, and then someone else did the chicken. Uh, I remember... At one point, somewhere down the road, I looked up how to cook brisket, and it landed on Emerald Lagasse recipe. <laughs> and Emerald was like hot shit back then. Like yeah, that's yeah. the guy. Yeah. That's who everyone wants to be. So I did this Emerald Lagasse recipe, and it's got herbs in the rub, oregano, and all sorts. <laughs> and, yeah, and I th- I think the entire cook was wrapped in, in foil. I had no idea what I was doing. Obviously, <laughs> somehow. And we watched other people, like, they're grilling the brisket. It was insane. <laughs> Somehow, we get third in brisket. It's a, it's a crappy culinary school <laughs> barbecue cook-off. Somehow, I get third in brisket by cooking it the entire time in foil. Uh, it was probably tender. It was tender. <laughs> I guess, you know, they don't look for smoke rings anymore, right? So, uh, you know, we got, like, second in ribs and, like, second in chicken. We won, you know. But after that, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. This is cool, man. Like, because it's a party, like like today is, you know, at the barbecue festival. The night before is always the best time. This is a party. I mean, do this more often, man. That's a that's a barbecue secret. Yeah, right. It's uh, that's how you get hooked. So yeah. So after that is when I really started getting into barbecue. And speaking of books, the the library at the school had uh, Mike Mills' book, Peace, Love, and Barbecue, and I checked that out, and I never returned it. And the school closed, and they took all my money, so I don't care. And if someone from that school is listening, come find me. Uh, the great thing It was worth the money at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I paid $32,000, whatever, for that book. Um, or the government did. You guys, the taxpayers did, I guess. Uh, the great thing is I, I got to meet Mike last summer and tell him, like, you first barbecue book I ever looked at was yours. And that was my Bible for a long time. Uh so after that, start studying it, getting on, uh, I guess the smoke ring, uh, barbecue forum. Yeah, I mean, that is an old forum. Yeah, oh, yeah. but there's, yeah. Still, I mean, there's a lot of good information to be mined from there. A ton yeah. of good information. Yeah. It's not where it was back then. But if you go 06. back to the archives and you see some of that old stuff, it's, yeah. it's really good. Yeah. And I'll get on every now and then just out of curiosity. And the guys, the main guys that were there back then, are still on. Mr. Mojo Rising. Oh yeah. My dumb cooks. <laughs> uh, I learned a ton from that. Uh, and you know the great thing about barbecue guys there's no secrets the hard work is a secret so no one is scared to sh- tell their tricks and that's what was great about the forum everyone had tricks and they all you know that's when I discovered the uh, that vinegar mustard sauce someone on there was talking about it and, and that's one of the things we hear a lot is you know and Russell's another one that tells us this all the time is I can tell you exactly what I do and it doesn't matter because you could do it the exact same way I do it, but if you're doing it on a different pit or if you're doing it a little bit differently, the final product's going to come out different. So it really doesn't matter that the whole barbecue secrets thing is kind of an antiquated notion yeah. because you can't replicate everything. I think it everything. is to a point, and, and, and my argument against that is that um, what what Aaron Franklin did was he made it much more accessible to a larger yeah, public. Between so. Aaron and between the whole social media explosion, right, right. There, it's a lot easier to find those things right. now. You know, whereas there's, there's thousands of videos on YouTube where you can essentially learn 
you know, where you would have to go through cooks over and over and over again to get right. to that point, you can at least start from a, a good starting Learning point. Learning how to slice a damn brisket. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Is, it, I wish I could have started there. I wish <laughs> I wish I could have done YouTube back then. I screwed up a lot of brisket. Uh, but no, what I always tell people is like, I, I got no secrets. Just day starts at four in the morning. You show up at four in the morning, I'll show you everything. No one that I've not hired, obviously <laughs> like Wade shows up. No one show, has ever shown up. Like, Teach me how to barbecue. All right, I'm, I'm barbecuing in two days. Come Meet me over, at four man. in the morning. That was part one of our interview with Patrick Fegis of Fegis Barbecue here in Houston, Texas. We know this wasn't as barbecue-centric as a lot of our episodes tend to be, but this was a much more important story that we wanted to tell completely uncut and uncensored. Um, so we, we hope you can appreciate and respect the, the amazing story that Patrick had to tell. The upcoming parts of the Fiji's Barbecue story will be a lot more restaurant and barbecue centric as we get into Patrick's extensive restaurant history throughout Houston, as well as his co-owner, business partner, co-head chef and wife, Erin Fiji's, uh, and what she's brought to the restaurant in terms of her culinary creativity. So we look forward to getting into more detail on that in the upcoming episode, and we hope you stay tuned and enjoy it. We also wanted to give a really special thank you to Mitch Fairchild of Fairchild Barbecue, who wrote this creative, awesome Tales from the Pits intro song just for us. That was extremely kind of you, Mitch. Uh, we really appreciate it. We played a little clip of it as the intro, and here it is in its entirety. We've been cruising up and down these roads are looking for some smoke In hopes of finding barbecue and meeting real fine folks we spent some time in Lubbock, Lockhart, Luling, Lexington Eating brisket, sausage ribs, and pulled pork on a bun Barbecue's our passion, and that's just what you'll get Where the can burns is a barbecue where Tales from the pits 